Hello, you're watching the Le Novel Esprit video series on the theology of the body. This video is dedicated to audience 32. We are your hosts. I am Jeremy Hossader. And I'm Guillermo Moreno. So to begin with some review, we've talked about before that original innocence is, well, within original innocence, we know that the body at masculine and feminine has a spousal and procreative meaning and that the body is the substratum for the reciprocal gift of persons the body is the foundation or the basis for this communion of persons between the man and woman this is a mystery of creation from the beginning and this is part of the experiences of the first man, first woman in original innocence. Now, after the first man, first woman sinned, after they disobeyed, we now have the situation of original sin. And in this situation, concupiscence deforms this experience of the body and its meaning within the heart of man. So within the heart of man, concupiscence deforms the spousal and procreative meanings. And it obscures the fact that the body is the substratum for the communion of persons. And so because of concupiscence, we have a we have this reciprocal relation that no longer seems to express personal communion. There now appears obstacles to this communion due to concupiscence. And the other becomes an object of attraction. And so a third observation is that with the with the introduction of concupiscence, you have a disharmony between the body and the soul. And so now the body constrains and acts against the spirit of man in some respect. So with all that in mind, we can now move on. So concupiscence. The body due to concupiscence as has almost lost its capacity to express love as self-gift. This capacity is not extinguished, but it is damaged. This capacity is still possible because the body is still able to express love from the heart. And so this means that the spousal meaning of the body is not entirely suffocated by concupiscence, but it will be threatened continuously by concupiscence. And so the heart of man becomes the battlefield between love and concupiscence. And the relationship between love and concupiscence is inversely proportional. The more man has, is dominated by concupiscence, the less he is able to love and this means 
then that the man dominated by concupiscence experiences less the spousal meaning of the body and becomes desensitized to the gift of the other person. On the flip side, the more man is formed by love within his heart, the less concupiscence affects him and the more he experiences the spousal meaning of the body and the more receptive he will be of the gift of the other person. Now, this desire of the heart, if we recall that we've been spending the last few audiences looking at Matthew 5, verses 27-28, and this is part of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, but I say unto you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her has made her, has committed adultery with her. In this verse, this desire of heart, it's not always obvious. This desire can be concealed, and one might even believe that this desire of heart that makes the woman an adulteress, that this desire whereby the man commits adultery, he may actually believe it to be love. He might confuse it for love, even though it actually is not. And so this desire has a power to change love, to alter it, and obscure the gift of persons. And this raises a question then as to whether one can trust the heart. And contrary to what many people will say, yes, you can, but it needs to be controlled. And just a little bit of foreshadowing, JP2 will talk more about the heart and this and about trust and about those who have a suspicion of the heart. Okay, so there, Guillermo. Yeah, in fact, I have a question. What would be most people or many people's response that is contrary to what JP2 says? Yes, but it needs control. What would many people say in response to the, the question whether one can trust the heart? Is it no or something else? Yeah, I think I think there's a tendency to just say that you cannot trust the heart because a lot of people set up a dichotomy between love as an emotion versus, say, reason. And so... Love appears something as irrational. And if it's irrational, okay. how are you going to control it? That makes a little more sense. I just figured uh, many people would say, oh, yeah, just, just follow your heart. Exactly. But um, not. I would imagine most people are not critical of the fact that our hearts, quote unquote, can get us into a lot of trouble. Right. So... If we take a step back and bring in some of the philosophy of JP2, what he calls for is an integration of the whole person in, say, his love and responsibility or his book, Person and Act. So when we talk about the human person, you have the emotions, you have free will, 
and you have reason. And all three of uh, all three of these faculties, so to speak, have to be integrated. They have to be unified. So when so man has to discern the truth through reason. He has to choose the good. So he has to once he knows the truth about a thing, he has to choose the good accordingly. The truth of the goodness has to be chosen. So you have your faculty free will, but it's also something that within the heart, you when we talk about the ethical life, you have to have love. And so you do have this problem then of the emotion as being a necessary part of the moral life. All right. There, it, it does raise some interesting questions of, well, if the emotions are not something that is falls under reason or falls under free will, how do they have a role in the moral life? And I think a, a simple example would be something like this. Let's say you see a um, someone gets hurt and that person is someone that you don't like and then you just take perverse joy out of the fact that that individual got hurt. Mm. Now, that joy could be something that spontaneously comes about, but then you have a moral obligation to reject that feeling in order to order yourself towards the hierarchy of values and recognize that, no, this person is hurt, and I should not take joy in that fact. So through your free will, you can say sanction or disavow an emotion. You, so you can approve or disapprove of an emotion through your free will. And when you do so, you make that emotion a part of you through accepting it or you're casting it from your personal center by rejecting it. So if you have a if you hear about a story of someone jumping into the river and saving someone then and you feel joy because of that situation well you you can with your free will accept that feeling and bring that within your personal center And so that, that is one way you can have free will integrated with the emotions, right? You have separate phenomena, but you have the whole person interacting. Um, I guess just another point concerning the emotions. It's also why good literature is important so that children can learn to identify with morally worthy characters so they can sanction and so they can accept and reject what is good and evil.
Are there characters. any? I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to ask if there's any books that you do recommend for children that would help to, uh, that that would serve in paving the road for um, controlling ourselves in light of emotional reactions. Well, I'm a little bit biased, and I would just refer the listener to the classics, so homework or someone like, or something like Beowulf. You know. I was thinking that I think I was thinking way too contemporary because <laughs> partially because I think maybe coming of age stories. Coming of age? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's not necessarily contemporary. You got, I think, Oliver Twist. You got, right. You're, you're I guess, Charles to kill Dickens him. A, there. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So, the, yeah. Yeah. No, there's, there's many great stories. Okay. But I would be prejudiced towards the classics. Okay. But that could that would include things like To Kill a Mockingbird and mm-hmm. say Anna Green Gables or The Adventures of Alice in Wonderland, you know? Mm-hmm. Or the Grimm Brothers or, you know, the fairy tales of Hans Christian Anderson. I mean, there's a lot. Awesome. To the interested reader also about the role of the emotions in the moral life, mm-hmm. I would recommend Dietrich von Hildebrand. He has a book called Ethics, and the concept of disavow and sanction is directly from one of the chapters of that book. So if you want a resource on that, Dietrich von Hildebrand's Ethics is very good. All right. Um, did you have any other questions, Guillermo? Not exactly. Okay. No, that was a good question awesome. about the heart. Yep. And the moral life, because that it is one of those interesting philosophical problems. I do find myself just contemplating the heart even more, and it's something that we touched on in a previous episode about how the heart is the organ that uh, represents the will. And there was that tug of war in my mind. Well, why not the brain? Because that's where we have our cognition and our choices. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Um, that discussion. Yeah. Yeah, I wish I could. Yeah. That was in the context of the biblical concept of the heart. Okay. And just to be precise, the biblical concept of the heart makes the heart the center of man the center of the personal subject so it's not just like the center of say the faculty of willing but everything that's properly attributed to the person that would be the center awesome All right. There's another very interesting book called The Heart by Dietrich von Hildebrand that I recommend to the listeners as well. So switching back to concupiscence, given the fact that concupiscence 
is antithetical to this love, right? We have this inversely proportional relationship. And so concupiscence is going to cause all kinds of damage. And here we have a nice list of consequences of concupiscence. So concupiscence attacks the sincere gift of self. It deprives the dignity of gift. So the mutual reciprocal gift of self by the man and woman is deprived of its dignity due to concupiscence. Concupiscence depersonalizes man because man is transformed into an object of consumption for the other person. He is no longer treated as a subject that is, as a personal center of being, his personal dignity is no longer regarded. He's just transformed into a mere object. When, he, when one looks at the man through the eyes of concupiscence alone. Now, concupiscence, therefore is opposed to the sacramental unity of the communion of persons. It casts doubt upon the fact that each person is willed by God for his own sake. And so in light of these facts, we say that the subjectivity of the human person, where subjectivity is the interior life of man, that which properly makes man a human person, that subjectivity, the personhood, is given over to a kind of objectivity that is defined in making the man or the woman an object for sexual gratification. And so, concupiscence signifies that the relationship between the man and woman is one-sided reduced to body and sex. And keep in mind that the term sex here is used by JP2 to refer to the body's masculinity or femininity. It's not referring to the conjugal act. It's referring to masculinity and femininity. And so concupiscence represents a failure to treat the body's masculinity and femininity in their full depth, in that full depth of subjectivity. So the masculinity and femininity is not being treated according to the fact that it is the masculinity and femininity of this human person right here before me. Instead, that masculinity and femininity is transformed into an object and so the body represents now as an object to be appropriated, to be used. The relationship of gift becomes a relationship of appropriation. And all this further signifies that there is a loss of the entire freedom of gift and self-mastery. Because once you lose the ability to freely gift yourself, you've lost your self-mastery 
your ability to gift yourself to the other. Um, Guillermo, did you have anything else you'd like to add yeah, here? Uh, just just a little building off of what you said. If if we don't, um, I think for lack of other words, own up to our actions and our actions. Um, I I are moral or immoral but we're the authors of those actions so and where we just have that lack of self-mastery there's that lack of ownership of oneself and that's why um that there's the quote that i've heard before that says something along the lines of what you just said right now that um we can't properly, we can't actually give ourselves if we don't have self-mastery, if we don't have control over our own, over our own selves. It's a little redundant, but um, that's something that I wanted to point out, as well as I just want to mention that this, this slide, um, yeah, it's, I encourage our listeners to, uh, write this down because it very in one slide we have what the problems of our problem for lack of other words here here's concupiscence this is how it affects us yeah it's quite astonishing just to look at the slide and see this is what concupiscence does mm-hmm. it's a quite a long list and we could probably add more to that's it. that's what i was wondering so uh, but no, it, it looks very um yes uh no not succinct what's the word i'm looking for like you said maybe we could add some more to it it's otherwise i do find it otherwise exhaustive yeah this is this slide summarizes three articles of this audience just oh, jp2 going through these are what concupiscence does to that mystery of creation revealed by god so this is half of the audience roughly speaking that uh where it's jp2 explain what is concupiscence doing um Speaking of which, the audience, or I should say the listener, you should not feel the need to write it down if you don't want to. Of course not. We do have these um, slideshows available on our website under our Theology of the Body section. So if you wanted the entire slideshow or any of the slideshows, you do have access to those on our website. However, it is. It is a good thing to write things down because that helps with memory retention. Uh, this this slide specifically, you um, want it at your fingertips. Yeah. Writing something down helps you work through and master the material and make it your own. All right. I appreciate the... Um, going back over some of that material Guillermo, because those yeah. are very important points key takeaways of this audience so to speak mm-hmm. um did you have anything else you'd like to add Guillermo? i do not all right in that case 
let's see here. We will say thank you for watching our video. If you have been enjoying our content, please subscribe to our social media, like, share, and comment. And it further, if you have been enjoying our content, please consider making a financial donation. You can financially support us through PayPal pay, or Patreon, and your donation goes towards our website maintenance and the purchase of further resources to continue providing you with great content. Speaking of great content, you can find more of our stuff on laynovellspreet.com. We have many articles there and a podcast. Guillermo, do you have more details about our podcast? Yes. So in our other podcast series, we talk about a variety of other topics, other kinds of topics, such as trends in culture and politics, always from a Catholic personalist perspective. Now, we upload our episodes onto buzzsprout.com. You can find our page from Buzzsprout on the Lenovella Spreet website. And you can listen to us directly on Buzzsprout or use it to access our podcast episodes in other major platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. All right. And just to reiterate, if there's anything that you're wondering about that we have on social media, you can just simply go to lenovellesprit.com slash subscribe. That has all of our information on how to donate money to us on our social media profiles and where at our podcast is being distributed. Um, do you have any other comments, Guillermo? No, I would just like to ask our viewers and listeners to keep us and our mission in your prayers. Yeah, thank you for that reminder. Yeah, please keep us in your prayers. And with that, I'm going to say goodbye. Bye, everyone. God bless.